So hi, Compounders. We are here today with the Dividend Guy. Thank you, Mike, for accepting. After the European Dividend Growth Investor, we have another famous dividend investor now focusing into North America, Canada in particular. Thank you for accepting our invite. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. So first of all, you are present uh, online on several platforms, uh, website, YouTube, you have a su subscription uh, platform. So can you, can you tell us uh, more to keep track of all the good things you're doing? Uh, yeah, so I just love to create content, I guess, and I'm passionate about investing. So I do that all day. Uh, so it all started when I bought uh, the Dividend Guy blog. So uh, back then I had a personal finance blog and then I realized I could make a few bucks out of it, but that was like back in 2006. Um, and eventually I realized that you could buy and sell personal finance blogs and, and so on. So, and, and make some good profit out of them. So it started to become like a small business. And I eventually in 2010 bought the Dividend Guy blog and decided to shift my entire investing strategy towards dividend growth investing. Uh, the thing is, I, I was investing between 2003 and 2010, but the thing is I was spending a lot of time on the market, like trading uh, almost every week, like so three, four hours of research every single day. Uh, but then, um, Fast forward in 2010, I have two kids, I'm doing my MBA, so, and I'm working full time as a financial planner <laughs> in a bank. Uh, so yeah, so time's run out and I, I couldn't afford to spend that much time uh, on the market. Uh, and then I bought this blog and I thought, wow, like if you buy dividend growers, you require some due diligence at first, but once you do the hard work, you can keep all those companies and you're going to get similar returns than if I was like buying or selling, because sometimes I mean, you make good trades, but some other times it's not that easy. Uh, so switch all my, um, my platform, my, my investment strategy towards dividend growth investing. And then in 2012, the same guy who had the dividend guy blog built a platform, a membership platform called dividend stocks rock which is a membership website. But at, the, at that time, the guy didn't have any, any enough time to run it and, and grow. So I bought like the platform, the design, the idea basically, because there was no member. And then I created uh, what is now today DSR. Uh, so it was more like a side business at that time. In 2013, we launched a website, but I was still working at the bank. So that was a lot of fun, but it was just to pay, you know, like a nice car, some vacations, and that's pretty much it. And then in 2015, I decide that I should take a sabbatical with my wife and three kids. We were just kind of like, I don't know, like running sick of being in that rat race and just like, you know, waking up in the morning, going to work and then going to bed and rinse and repeat every day. Uh, so we rented our house, we bought a small RV and we jumped on it and we went for a one year trip across North America and Central America. So we spent most of our time in Central America. We lived in Costa Rica for three months. And this is where I realized that instead of that helping a few hundred people at the bank with their investment and their retirement planning, I can reach thousands of investors using like online platforms and my membership, Dividend Stocks Rock. 
So when I came back in 2017, uh, I quit my I quit my job as a private banker officially and started working full time on DSR. So at that time, I then uh, created a YouTube channel, The Dividend Guy, and a podcast uh, two years ago um, because like a lot of people now listen more to um, to to content than they watch videos or they read blogs. So I put the blog a little bit on the side, but I'm also a lot active on Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter at the dividend guy as well. So you can see that there's a recurrent team here. <laughs> and, uh, and and yeah, here, here I am right now, five years after that, the membership has grown to over 3000 members. And I'm just having a lot of fun doing that, taking care of them. And uh, we do private webinars, newsletters, portfolio models, a lot of stocks analysis, obviously. And I'm covering both Canadian and US stocks. So I guess we're probably going to talk a little bit more about US stocks because they're easier to for you to buy. I'm not even sure if you can buy Canadian stocks. We can, we can. Okay, really? Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, we use interactive brokers and uh, we can buy almost anything. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. This is quite interesting because we already see uh, your, your evolution from uh, being a trader to being more, you know, a dividend investor. You said that at, at some point you switched. Was there some particular event or was it just a natural evolution that led you to go deeper into dividend investing? There was a few things that happened pretty much at the same time. The first thing is when I started in 2003, um, I was doing like leverage loans at the banks. I was like some kind of like a credit analyst and I was helping people to get leverage loans so they can borrow money to invest. So I started to do the same thing. So I, I took a $20,000 line of credit, started to, tr to trade with that money. Cause I mean, I was like 23 back then, didn't have much money on the side. So I decided just, well, the bank is like offering me that money that which was almost free since I was working at the bank. So the, the interest rate was like maybe like one or 2% on it. So the, the risk reward of, of leveraging was very good for me because I didn't need to show astronomic returns. But lucky me, I started investing in 2003 where a monkey could make good money out of it, right? So um, I started trading and then in 2006, I generate $50,000 in, uh, in cash down to buy my first house just with the proceeds of my trading. So everything is running well, I'm super happy and I'm starting mm -hmm. to take a little bit more risk uh, just because everything runs so so sweet. And, and, and then um, in 2007, I decided to sell my house and buy another one. And in the meantime, I'm still trading with that extra cash flow uh, to, to hopefully like improve my house, pay down a little bit more, more debts and probably buy a new car. And then I go into a few penny stocks uh, thinking they're going to ju just jump like five times or whatever. And, and I, I still remember that day where I was expecting, it was a mining company and I was expecting results that were supposed to say, oh, we, drill, we drilled some holes and now we're gonna come up with like the results on that day. So I come back from lunch and then I open my brokerage account and I see that I'm down 50%. But I, it was like a clean cut 50%, like not 49 or something. So I thought, oh, maybe they split. And then I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't make sense. You know, like penny stock don't split like from, from a dollar to 50 cents. That doesn't make any sense. And then I do some research and realize that the results came in and they were obviously very bad. 
<laughs> so I lost a good chunk of my money there. So that was the first lesson, knowing that, you know, it's not because the market is going well that you can buy pretty much anything and hope that you're going to make money out of it. Sometimes you make you may make mistakes. Uh, that was my first mistake that I made, uh, mostly because I was investing in a bull market. So pretty much like what we ha we just saw um, for the past few years. Um, even if you're making a mistake on, on any stocks or type of investment, it seems that the market still goes up and then you can recover most of your mistake. And then boom, 22 happens. And then you're just like, yeah, you can actually lose money for a long time and it's not going to bounce back. <laughs> so that was like a first hard lesson. So I was like, not too sure what to do at that point with my investment strategy. I decided to not touch penny stocks. And, and fortunately for me, I sold all my other companies and then bought my second house in 27, uh, 2007, uh, 2007, I mean, just before the market crashed in 2008. So when the market crashed, I didn't have much money invested, just like a couple of thousand dollars or something. So that didn't affect me that much. And then it was really when I bought the stock, the, the, the dividend guy blog that, uh, cause I was reading his blog for a while back then. And, and I eventually made an offer, but I was already like that idea of having like those dividend growers was already growing in my mind at that point. And, and at first I had like some rules, uh, for example, I didn't want to invest in any stocks paying a dividend yield lower than like 3%. And then after some research, I realized that I could go under like under three, but not under two. And then eventually realized, you know what, what really matters is the dividend growth and not the yield. And actually when you go for high yield stocks, most of the time they're dividend traps or they may cut their dividend because there's no free lunch in finance basically. So if you find a stock, especially in the bull market where you find a stock paying six, seven, 10% yield, there's probably a problem with it. And you should do that research, that extra step to make sure that you understand how come this business is paying such a high yield versus others. Uh, while right now the market is down, so it's a lot easier to find five or six percent yielders that are safe stocks. Um, but when you're, whenever you're in a, a bull market where it's been a few years that the market keeps going up, I would not play on those. But yeah, so that strategy evolved a little bit more. But now I'm really focused on all companies must not only pay a dividend but grow it year after year. So after many years uh, that, that you do this. So how do you balance the, the two components? So the, the dividend, the current dividend yield and the growth? Of, uh, I actually completely ignore the yield now. Okay. Uh, like I could, I could buy companies like Visa, for example, that I bought in 2017, because when I came back um, and, uh, from my trip and I quit my job, I, uh, I received the equivalent of my pension plan. So I had like two options, either I leave it at the bank and they, they keep growing it. But obviously since you don't contribute, you would not receive a big rent out of that. Uh, so I decided to just get a check and it's kind of like you invested in a, in a lock-in account. So I cannot add money into it. It's really for uh, retirement. It's a specific type of account that I will be able to withdraw from it, but only once I reach a certain age and that I prove that I'm not working anymore. Uh, but I decided to invest it all and it was in 2017. And yeah, so companies like Visa was like, as long as what I use to, to select companies now is uh, a combination of three factors. That is the, the basis of all my stock filters. So obviously after that, you look at the, the, the entire business. But the first thing that I look at is what I call the dividend triangle. 
So it's three components. So the first one is I want to make sure that the company shows uh, revenue growth over the past five years. And I, I look a, a lot more um, on the, the graph and the trends than the number itself, because sometimes they make a big acquisition. So from year two to year three, there's a big jump. But after that, there's nothing else. So that is not exactly what I'm looking for. I'm really looking at a company that is able to grow their sales year after year. So basically, you know, like iconic brands, uh, strong market share, maybe uh, growth by acquisition or, or investing in marketing or innovation or whatever. But they have like some kind of like ways to make the business better year after year. The second metric I follow is the earnings per share, because it's one thing to generate sales, but I also want that business to generate profit. And the fact that I'm looking at trends over five years kind of like makes it a better average because obviously earnings is based on accounting principles. And sometimes you can put stuff on earnings that will like put them a little bit lower or increase them. But after five years, at one point, you cannot just play around with the numbers. So if a business is profitable, you'll see it. And eventually, well, if a business is growing their sales and growing their profits, I'm expecting that they're sharing their wealth with shareholders. So I will expect dividend growth to be the third component. So whenever those three metrics are going pretty much towards the same growth, same trend, this is where I start to get very interested by the company itself. And then I'm going to look into the financials, uh, write down my investment thesis, and make sure that it fits within my portfolio. There has to be some consistent growth in fundamentals. When does price enter the picture? Uh, funny enough, I'm not a big fan of looking at stock valuation. And, and, and I have a pretty good reason, actually, for that. Uh, you know, like with the service that we have at Dividend Stocks Rock, I do have access to a Refinitiv terminal, which is similar to Bloomberg. Uh, Refinitiv uh, belongs to the London, London Stock Exchange now. And, and it's basically uh, an amazing database. Like you can get everything from every type of stocks, graphs and so on. It's just like huge. And you can also see um, stock price target by analysts. So when you think about that, those analysts, they are CFAs, they have pretty much unlimited resources. So they have like teams working for them. They can pretty much call the CEO of any company, say, hey, what you doing, Matt? Matt like, uh, how's the business? Like, what do you do and, and everything? And they can ask questions and they will get re return, uh, re answers back. And, and those financial analysts, they have like complex financial models to determine the, the, the stock price target and, and the valuation. And what I find fascinating is I can enter any stocks in the Refinitiv platform and they're going to give me like all the target price. And most of the time, like let's say we look at Apple, you're going to have like 50 analysts and, and they're going to range from minus 25 to plus 25 potential in the next 12 months. So basically, they're just telling you that with unlimited resources, they're not even able to give a good stock price. So some people are saying, oh, it's an amazing deal. Some others are saying, oh, it's the worst investment ever. You're going to lose money because it's greatly overvalued. In the end, you'll have to wait a year to know what's going to happen. So for that reason, I'm not a big fan of, of looking at the stock price. If I love a business and my investment thesis is very strong on this one, I'd rather buy it now and, and hold it for like 10, 15, 20 years because I know that maybe I'm not getting the best price, but I'm getting the best company. And that that is worth a lot more for me. So obviously I'm gonna look at 
like P ratio trends and the dividend yield trends over five, 10 years, just to see if the market like find that it's like maybe could be overvalued or undervalued. But from my experience, uh, you know, in 2017, another example that I love is uh, I bought Microsoft at 75 bucks at the end of the year. And back then, all financial analysts agreed that Microsoft was highly overvalued, like like well-known companies like FastGraph that I have like huge respect for FastGraph. It's an amazing business in, uh, in, in the States and they focus a lot on valuation. And they were saying, you better wait until Microsoft gets back to 50, 55 bucks because 75, that's a crazy price for that business. Well, I guess, they are a bit wrong on this one. And, and just, just an example of how you, like, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So I rather focus on companies. I know that they have plenty of room to increase their dividend every year. And that I know that in 10 years from now, they're going to be worth a lot more than today. So those are a lot more important for me than, than the, the stock price that I will pay for it. Right. So essentially, after filtering out companies that don't perform in terms of fundamentals as you want in terms of revenue growth, EPS, and, and, and dividend growth, uh, you focus on, I guess, some kind of moat, some kind of, uh, do, do, can they continue to, to do what they did in the past? So yeah. are there specific uh, things that, that you try to assess from their business model or by reading what they do? Well, one thing I do is I make sure they operate in a sector that I understand because there are like so many different industries and some of them, it's really like, like depending on your background and, and your knowledge, you may be comfortable or not comfortable with a specific industry. And when I'm not quite sure how the company makes money, like what I like to say is if I cannot explain the business model to a 12 years old, well, then I'm just going to let it go. And I'm not even going to dig a little bit further because I will not be able to understand why the company is doing well in specific situation or why it's going bad. Um, what I see from my members is often they will ask me, oh, how come BlackRock is going down so much in 22? And I'm like, well, that's easy. That's be it's not because of the business. It's because they are an asset manager An asset manager they do well when the market does well and they do very bad when the market goes down because the bulk of their revenue is a percentage a fee that they charge on the assets they manage so when the market goes down two things happens to those assets the first thing is the value goes down so naturally revenue goes de de decreases and the second thing is they're going to have investors selling their assets and, and going towards bonds or fixed income or just going cash. And when that happened, well, it's kind of like a double whack on, on BlackRock's revenue. They're losing because the value is down and now they're losing some of the client's money as well. So obviously the stock price is going to plummet. And, and when there are positive news on the market, they're going to be the first to bounce back because they highly depend on that. So just knowing how an asset manager will evolve throughout different economic cycles or, or just to understand, for example, like semiconductors in the technology sector, uh, it's highly cyclical. So you go through investment phase where all clients are buying new chips and analogs and they need that. So then those prices go up like there's no tomorrow. But at one point, 
there is an end of that investment cycle. There is like at one point, some companies are just saying, you know what, now we're just going to manage what we have right now and we're going to slow down our on expenses and new projects and we don't need new technology right away. So then you can be a little bit more comfortable knowing, okay, so we just run into a three or five years of investment cycle. It went well. Now I expect that revenues are going to stagnate or, or slowly go down for one or two years, which will totally make sense. And there's nothing to be alarmed about. It's just going to like reset eventually. But if you don't understand the nature of semiconductors, you're going to panic. And then you're going to think, oh my God, like this company is like is mature now. There's no more growth. So I might just sell the company right now before and, and take my profit and run. And it's probably the right time to invest more, actually. Right. Uh, Matt and I were analyzing T. Rowe price a few months ago, and that was the case, right? T. Rowe is, is, is an, another incredible stock. In, in some sense, that they have had this very long track record of dividend growth. And of course, they are correlated with the market. So now they are down. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, definitely not a good, uh, it's definitely not a good year for T. Rowe. And that is actually a good example of, of, of understanding a business model for T. Rowe. Uh, one thing that is very interesting and the, re the reason why they, they have such a long-term track record for dividend increases is most of their money is uh, made from pension plans. So most of the money invested are for retirement accounts, which have a very long-term horizon. And then you have a lot of institutional investors and institutional investors like pension plans they will not change from one asset manager to another every three months. They're gonna take their sweet time to select one, and then they're gonna stick to it for a long time. So Thero has a very sticky business, which not necessarily all asset manager has. And, and then you can understand say, okay, so the stock price going down, but it's not necessarily a, like a bad signal for the business, it's just, the market being the market and not necessarily like everybody selling their retirement plans and going in cash forever. They need to generate money from those plans because if not, you'll not be able to retire on time. Right, exactly. And, and uh, uh, actually, we bought uh, a few months ago because of this. Another theme that I'm very curious about is um, diversification or concentration, right? That there's, mm -hmm. uh, there are two sides of, yeah, of this debate. Where are you on uh, on this topic i like to have like around 30 stocks about equally weighted so i will fall in the camp of diversification but not too much meaning that i like when i buy a stock and it has an impact to my portfolio so if i have like a one percent position it it won't make much difference and I don't really like that. So sometimes it happens because, I mean, you know, like all your position goes up and goes down. But, but ideally, when I start a new position, my goal is to have at least 3 to 4% weight on it for that reason. Um, I like to have like maybe 8 to 10 sectors in my portfolio. I'm always 100% invested and 100% um, in equities. Uh, 90% of my stocks are paying a dividend. I bought Amazon a long time ago because I was researching on Target and Walmart and, and preferred Amazon. And I thought Amazon will be the winner. And depending on the year, I'm, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. So it's, it really depends. But that, 
like one of the rare non-dividend paying stocks I have in my portfolio, but I believe it's a better way to have uh, several sectors in my portfolio as well, because one year it's going to be technology that will do well, another year it will be uh, REITs, another year it's going to be something else. So for example, at the end of 21, I sold a few shares of Apple and Microsoft in my portfolio because they were getting too big. And I replaced them and invested into um, uh, telecoms with Dallas, Activision, Blizzard, and Boston Canadian banks. Uh, and, and some of my members were asking me, well, why do you sell your top performer and your best sector? And I was just like, it's not because I don't believe in tech stocks in the future. It's just that right now I'm getting to about 30% of my portfolio in technology stocks, which is too much for my taste. And I'd rather sell like 5% weight out of it, reallocate that money elsewhere, and just keep a good position in Apple and Microsoft, but just like trimming a few percent of each of them, just to make sure that I play my cards right. And, you know, just a classic selling high to buy low. So I was selling at a very high price. And I eventually got lucky because in 22, Tech stocks didn't do well, so it was a good timing for me to sell those stocks um, and then reallocate that money elsewhere. So I definitely prefer to have a little bit of diversification here, but I will tend to let my winners run. I will tend to have this kind of like slightly high concentration in a specific sectors that I prefer. Uh, but overall, I try to maintain like my, my basic strategy is really to have like eight, 10 industries and roughly about 30 stocks in my portfolio. Great. Right. Um, okay. I can ask Guy one question now that we yeah. are more or less halfway through the interview, uh, because I can see as usual, when we do these interviews, there are always kind of like two sides, right? So we, we are talking to investors and then we are also talking to, to people that are also doing something else, right? So they are talking about investing to other people. Like Mike here said before, I wanted to quit the rat race. Um, I, I just felt that being more present on social media made me feel like I was having a greater impact, right? I could reach thousands of people rather than 50, 60, I don't know, right? And this is something that we all feel with our with our jobs. Right? We have a, a very, very small YouTube channel. So at the present moment, maybe it's not exactly like that. And we do hope to, to grow. But honestly, what we have felt with guys that even if we are very small and we had very few interactions, we have got great interactions, right? Even the fact yeah. that we are able to talk to you now and that we were able to interview other people, that's just great. And it's not something that you usually get with your nine to five. And so... You know, apart from saying that this is very inspiring, so by, you know, talking to someone like you, it's very inspiring for us. I wanted to ask, like, how you already kind of answered this question at the very beginning, but how are these two things like coming together for you? Because you are already able to to quit your job, which is, I think, great. I think now you are not in the rat race anymore, right? You could probably decide again to to travel and to go to Costa Rica again or maybe Asia. Um, but basically, if you have advice for, for someone that is someone else that is also feeling trapped in the rat race, um, what would that be? Because I think investing is part of the answer. I mm -hmm. guess that if you keep investing and saving as much as possible, you're going to become free at some point. But of course, doing something on the side of your nine to five can definitely accelerate this path to freedom, let's say. Definitely. Uh, 
When I started working in 2003, I did two things. I started investing at the same time. And it's kind of funny because even my, uh, my boss at that time, who, who became my mentor for five years, and he, he put me like on the right tracks on a lot of things. And one of the things that he said uh, on our very first meeting, he's like, okay, Mike, so in three months, you'll be allowed to buy shares of the, the, the National Bank where I was working. So you'll be allowed to buy shares and there will be a top up made by the bank. So meaning that if I put, I can't remember the names, the numbers, but let's say I put 4% of my salary, the bank is going to also put 4% of, of, of my salary into the, the, the bank shares. And he told me, you're gonna put the maximum allowed right away, right up front. And then you're going like pretty much like imposing me the principle of pay yourself first. Because he told me it's like, you will not have the time to get used to your paycheck because it's only three months. So after three months, you're going to get kind of like a pay cut because now you're going to get less money, but then you're going to save 8% of your salary forever. And as you get promotions and you increase your salary, well, you're just going to keep increasing that amount and you will never feel it because it's never in your account. So pay yourself first. I mean, it's super cliche, but that is something that works so well. And that was the first thing I did. The second thing I did was to have a sideline. I always wanted to have a sideline. So it started with a, a small um, finance blog, and then it became like a, a membership business. But, but it was really important for me uh, just to know that at any time, I could lose my job and I could always at least like depend on another source of income. So for some other people, it could be rental properties. It could be like any, like depending on, on, I can, depending on your skills, on your passions. I just love talking about finance. So I thought, well, there's something that I don't really see as a job, but I could make money out of it. So that pretty much bringing the bring brought me to, to the online world in, and when I came back from that trip, I also realized one thing that is super important. I wanted to quit my job for 10 years, but I was good at what I was doing. And I actually enjoyed my job very much. So I was not really like depressed or I was like looking forward to, to work every week. And I was feeling great as a financial planner, but I always wanted more and I always wanted something different, like more flexibility, more freedom. So I'm still working. I'm actually probably working more hours now, but I decide when I work them. And, and if I want to travel for a month, I can do it because I don't have to ask anybody. And as long as I have a laptop, I can still work where I am. Uh, just before COVID hit in 2020, we actually spent funny that you mentioned Asia because we spent one month in Vietnam and, 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 what I was able to do there is to work five to 10 hours per week while I was traveling. So early in the morning or at night when people, when, when my family was, was falling asleep, but that enables me to go on vacation for a month there and then still have summer vacation and holidays vacation and basically taking like two months off, but I was still working during those, those months. So I wanted to have that freedom. And, and what I realized when I came back is, you know, if you have this passion for something, if you have a side hustle or something, and then you're afraid to lose your job. And, and obviously that was my case. I was like, okay, so I have a good pension plan. I have a good paycheck. I love what I do. How can I be, you know, not appreciative, like not appreciate that and say, oh, I'm going to just throw that all away. I'm going to work on my, on my own stuff. Uh, and, and we've been brought 
like we've been educated to, you know, go to school, get a good job, save money, which are not bad advice. But I realized that I could quit all of that, work on what I really want to. And worst comes to worst, I can always go back. And, and that was the revelation that I realized is if there's a project you want to do, just do it. You know, like the sooner the better, because I asked myself during that trip, if I wake up tomorrow morning and I'm like 55 or 60, which will pretty much be too late to try those kind of like huge projects, will I regret it or not? And I was like, for sure, I'm going to regret it. So then the decision became clear and easy to understand that, you know what, let's, let's give it a try. Because if it doesn't work, what's the worst going to happen? Well, I'm going to probably withdraw a little bit money of my retirement account to sustain my lifestyle for a while and if it doesn't work out well i still have my papers like my, my bachelor degree and my mba i still have my experience and i just have to call a bank and they're gonna get back they're gonna they're gonna hire me again as a financial planner and and even today five years after i still have contact with that world and then some people are just like are you sure you're not looking for a job, Mike? Because we have one for you. So you can always go back to your previous job. And, and it's not true that nobody's going to want to hire you. It's, you just bring more experience and a different story to the table when you come back. And it's just like the right time is always to do it now. And as I said, if not, I mean, you just go back to what you were wanted, but at least you tried it. So that was like the second thing I did. And eventually, well... It, it brought me that freedom. And, and it's kind of funny because at first, like, right, I almost kept the same lifestyle for the past five years as I had uh, in terms of like, of like how much money I can spend and on vacations and so on. But my freedom improved incredibly. And today I can see that now it's compounding because, you know, when you have a job, you exchange time for money. So you work X amount of hours, so you get a paycheck accordingly. Sometimes there's a big, like there's a bit of a bonus, but that's pretty much the same thing. And the bonus will reset every single year. So as you build a sideline or a business, well, whatever I did in 22 or in 21 or in 2018, it's still there today. And it's compounding as well. It's similar to my dividend growth portfolio, basically. It's, you know, like the good purchase I made five years ago are still paying me today and they're still going to pay me in 10 years from now. So it's pretty much working on, on those like leverage that you can use to, to reach a higher level of like whatever you want, regardless, because I was not, I, I like to say I'm not rich of money, but I'm rich of time, which is a lot more important for me than, than having like a sport car in my driveway or whatever, you know, like I buy, I, I drive the same car for the past five years because when I came back and didn't have any car, so I bought one and I have no intention of selling it and buy another one. I just want to keep my Jeep and that's it. I'm very happy with it. I like the advice of just do it. I think it's uh, what many people are, are just afraid of, right? They're overthinking and they're like, what if, what if, but if you just start and you see how it goes in the, in the beginning, then probably you're going to get surprised and, what is also interesting is that you can see compounding both in investing, of mm -hmm. course, if you do things right, and in what you do online, right? And as you said, this is usually what you don't see in the corporate job or in whatever you're doing because you just swap time and money. So I, I like the advice. Thanks. And it's actually, it's kind of funny just quickly, but uh, a lot of people ask me, like, but but Mike, you're... you're uh... You're abandoning job security. Now you're going to be in, in an insecure world. And I'm like, no, it's totally the opposite. 
like having a business is probably like the most secure thing you can do for your finance because I'm the first one to know if the business goes wrong. And, and before that, I would be the last one to know. And once you know that your employer is not doing that well, well, usually it comes with a small package or a letter saying, well, we like you, Mike, but we have to let you go. <laughs> so I thought, you know, whenever like numbers are not great, I'm the first one I know uh, to know and I'm, I'm able to take actions to do some things about it. And especially now we are do, uh, looking at uh, many layoffs, right, from some companies. So it's, we kind of see a pattern starting or maybe not. But yeah, layoffs are, are terrible, of mm -hmm. course. Whereas when you are your, your own boss, I, I think it's different. Yeah, I mean, after all, every seven, ten years, whatever, there's a new cycle. So over a lifetime, you know, the probability that that happens is non-trivial. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One thing that uh, I was quite impressed by is that essentially you had your nine to five job and, and your side hustle, let's say your, your business for, for quite a few years in parallel. <clears throat> Can you tell us a little bit more about where did you get the conviction and uh, the inspiration to, to continue for so many years? Um, it, probably you, you saw some growth in the business, so you, you saw that it, it was working or something else. Um, it's, it's kind of funny because since I'm a kid, I was always looking to find ways to, to make money. So even during high school, uh, you know, back then we had tape cassettes, like for music. So I was like, I was, I, I found ways to buy like cheap cassettes where like that you can record on them. So I was recording and, and then like copying like albums and so on just to sell them like $1, $2 to my friends. And then uh, like I, we were living about like an hour away from Montreal, which is like the largest city in our province. So whenever I, I, I took the bus to go there, like the age of 15 or 16, I was telling my friend, oh, I'm going to Montreal. So if there's like specific things that you would like me to get, then I was just like charging a small fee. So I was always like looking for ways to make money. And, and then when I grew up, uh, I was still commuting to the university. So I, it would taking, usually it took me like an hour and a half to two hours, uh, like doing a, a mix of Metro subway and, and bus and buses. So sometimes I would arrive a bit late to my classes. So one day I arrived late at a class and I have to sit in front because there's no other place left, right? And, and I'm sitting beside a guy that he has his laptop on and he's like typing like there's no, there's no tomorrow. And he's like, like frantic with his mouse. And then and I see he's, he's doing some codes, but I don't understand anything that what he's doing. And he's clearly not taking notes from the economy class that we're having. So at the end of the, of the class, I asked him, I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh yeah, I have this website about tennis. And I'm like, about tennis? And back then it was just like a sports channel and he was a big fan of like tennis players. So he was like following uh, tournaments and so on, putting on stats and having a blogs. And he was actually making some good money out of that. And then I thought, oh, I mean, that's interesting. So would you like to do something with me? Like in terms, because we became friend and then I was like, oh, I'm interested in, in, in building a website with you. And he said, well, a lot of people are obviously asking me that because my stuff is already working well. So what I can offer you is how about we start something from scratch together and we'll see if you have the commitment. 
if you have like, because obviously when you start working as a side hustle, you're not going to necessarily make a lot of money at first. And I remember the first six months I was working on that blog, um, I didn't make anything. And after six months, I was making like a hundred bucks a month. So, you know, you're working like a bunch of hours and definitely it's not paying itself back. Like definitely not. So you just do that for fun. And, and you focus on, on metrics like page views, like, oh, a lot of people are reading my articles and so on, but like, there's not much money coming in. And I, I remember back then I was telling people, uh, yeah, I'm going to make money out of that. And a lot of like bloggers back then, they were just like the day that you're going to make like 200 bucks a, a month, you're going to make it. That's pretty much the the highest point you can reach in that industry. And I thought, no, I'm pretty sure that there's a little bit more to make. <laughs> but yeah, so, but the passion kept me going. I just love to talk about finance stuff in general. And I find that there's such a lack of education, not just about investing, but in finance in general. Like people don't make it a difference between a variable rate and a fixed rate mortgage and the implication. They don't know how to handle their budget, their credit cards. Uh, I mean, as, as we, we, we talked about before, like just basic stuff like pay yourself first. It's, it's well known across like the financial community. But if you talk to any of your friends or family that are not interested in finance, they're going to say, what do you mean by pay yourself first? You know, I have to pay my mortgage first. I have to pay my grocery first. <laughs> but they're just like, no, you have to pay yourself first. But those basic, uh, basic principles that are incredibly powerful over a long period of time, they're not known by most uh, people and and I just wanted to share that knowledge and and that passion that I have and that kept me going. But obviously, after a few years, what really picked on was the fact that I we were making money, like we were buying and selling blogs. That went well, and and when we shift the uh, the, the the strategy towards a membership website. What I really loved about Dividend Stocks Rock is the fact that I can project the numbers I'm going to make next month or next year because there's subscriptions. So I say, okay, so I have like a 82% renewal rate. So I know that if I make 100 bucks today, I'm going to make 82 bucks next year without any, like, any work. And obviously that's going to slow down, but I, I have to continue working. But at least it's predictable. There's a, a basis where I can do nothing and still get paid. And, and the fact that you can scale that business model because it's pretty much the same work to serve 10 members, 100 members, 1,000 members. Like today, I'm not working more because I have 3,000 members at DSR. I'm actually working less than I was working in 2017. So, you know, the, those type of things kept me going. And then eventually that was just the feedback from people. When you realize you're making a difference, when you realize that you're helping people, when, when, when members are writing me, they take, they take their time to write an email saying, thank you, Mike, because you helped me doing this. You, you helped me doing that. Or I sleep better at night just because, you know, I have this, like, I have you as a hiking buddy where I can always rely on. And then you give me that confidence, that trust. I thought, you know what, that's just so much fun. And I'm, I love what I do. And I feel that I'm making a small difference for some people. And that kept me going for all those years. That, that's very powerful.
So what, one thing that uh, changing just slightly, uh, it just crossed my mind, but I'm very interested about it, is uh, housing. So we know that in Canada, there's a huge, I mean, right now prices are, are going down, but in, in the last uh, decades, uh, I guess, <clears throat> prices went up much faster than other countries, sure, surely the US, Europe in general. We live in Scandinavia, so prices are going up. I mean, yeah. now they're going down, but in the last, in the last 20 years, they, they went up in a way that is divergent compared to wages. So there's a problem. <laughs> because when you, when you uh, mentioned uh, fixed rate versus variable rate and people don't know now, you know, central banks are hiking, it's quite a difficult period. One question is about, in general, housing. Do you think it's a, it's a good asset class uh, or not? Did you think, what, what do you think about it in general? And second, about macro, so okay. more, more in general. So first, I don't see my house as an asset. I see it as a, like a luxury, you know? Like it's, it's great to have your own place and you can do whatever you want as opposed to renting. But I don't see that as an investment. Uh, the thing is, when you factor in all the charges and the time that is required to take care of and do the maintenance of your house, I mean, two years ago, I had to spend $50,000, $15,000 on, on roofing because, I mean, it was like the house was like 12 years old or something like that. And then we have like, well, you're aware of that kind of like hard weather that, that we have in Canada. It's pretty much the same thing in Scandinavia. So, so sometimes it, it's, it doesn't last that long and then you have to do some repairs. But when you factor everything in, uh, yes, you're making money a little bit out of your house, but it's not that impressive, I found, uh, unless you sell at a very peak level. If I had sold my house, for example, at the beginning of, of, of 22, where the housing was like very high and interest rates were not that, that, that high, then I would have made a lot, of good, a lot of good money. But since then, the housing price probably dropped by another like 20, 25%. And then I would pretty much do a little bit less than what I'm making with my investment, which requires a lot of less time and has no fee. So if I compare it as like, okay, I have money that I invest, especially because you can, you also lose, use a lot of leverage to buy a house. And then people don't see it as a leverage as you would uh, borrow $100,000 to invest in the stock market, but it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, it's not because it's brick and mortar that that and that you can actually feel it and live in it that it's any different than the stock market. And if I if if somebody sent me a statement with my house value every month or every day, I could have seen it declining big time this year. You know, <laughs> so so I don't. I think it's. I think it's great, uh, especially in Canada, because like we have access to those like large lands and 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 it's great to, to raise your family in a house and so on so it's a great luxury and yes it pays for itself so that's good but in the end i i don't count on that to fund any part of my retirement as for housing in general well then if you go for real estate and you want to buy rental properties uh, and rent an apartment or a condo then you can make a lot of money out of it but that becomes a business it really depends if you are comfortable and interested in managing properties because that also comes uh with with some great sides and some downsides i mean it's pretty much like having a business like i'm free of doing whatever i want 
but I'm also forced to work on it if my server crashes on a Sunday night. Well, I ha I'm the one who's, who will have to work on it as opposed that if I'm an employee, I don't have to care about that part. Somebody else elsewhere has, like it will fall on their lap, but not on mine. So it, it, it comes with pros and cons. Um, from what I see in Canada is we had an amazing run, uh, especially because when there was the financial crisis of 2008, we weren't as affected as, uh, as it happened in the US, mostly because in the US, banks were able to do subprime loans, uh, basically saying, okay, so, so guy, you cannot really afford to pay this house, but we're gonna still lend you the money because in six months from now, you're going to either flip it and make 25% return on it, or either you're going to give me back the keys and I'm going to flip it and make that 25% profit off your back. And it was just based on the promise that you're buying a house at this level and you're going to sell it a little bit higher up and the next one's going to sell it a little bit higher up and so on. In Canada, those type of loans were not uh, available. So the, the, the federal regulation prohibited banks to take that kind of risk. So it's not because we were smarter, it's just because regulation in place would not allow, Canadi allow Canadian banks to take that, that kind of risk. So the bubble crashed, but most people just were able to pay their house anyways because they were not actually over leveraged. And, and it kept growing. But even today, when you look at overeaten market, it's probably not true, like Toronto or Vancouver like, or, or, or like uh, in Alberta. Um, those are like very expensive markets, but if you look at like second tier or third tier markets where it's pretty much accessible even today. So I don't like if you if you're willing to live outside of like large urban area, you can buy a house at a, still a very cheap price. So I think the problem is I would not be I, I couldn't I couldn't even like sell my house and live in the Rockies like in in Vancouver or or Western Canada. Because the price of my house versus like what I would get there, it's completely different. You know, like a regular house would sell for $2 million and I would have a hard time to get like half a million dollar for mine. And, and even then, if I, if I could transport my house over there, it would probably sell for 5 million, you know? So it really depends on, on where you are in that place. So it's kind of crazy. I guess it's, uh, it all comes down to at one point, a little bit of uh, geo arbitrage as well. Um, I will, if, if I didn't have kids, I would probably live in a place like Costa Rica just because housing price is even lower and cost of life is lower there. And, and I could still make Canadian and US dollars out of my subscription model. So that would be, a, that would be the best scenario. But uh, since we have kids and they want to, have, to be with their friends and family, it's all good. But maybe one day we're going to move. <laughs> this is also the beauty of an internet business that you are location independent, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> We are okay. around one hour, so I mean, we don't want to keep Mike for too long. I guess he's also busy. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, if you have other other questions, of course, maybe we can ask one. Um, otherwise, I think we can just thank Mike. He was already very kind to to share one hour of, of his time with us. I think it was uh, quite uh, an interesting and broad discussion. Yeah, and, and I like I, I, because they are inspirationals for those who want yeah. to start a side hustle, for those who want to invest, and for those who want to do both. And they are inspirational for us as well. And they're also educational because then we also end up talking about some practical things in finance. So I think 
that there are many different aspects that are positive about you know chatting with people like Mike. So Mike, <laughs> thank you again very much for your time. And it's been awesome. And uh, we also hope to just keep in contact because of course we're gonna keep following you on your different platforms. And uh, so hopefully maybe in one year or two, we can catch up again and, uh, and talk again. For sure, that's been a pleasure. Uh, actually, the hour passed very fast. <laughs> I didn't even like, uh, it's a good thing we have a timekeeper because I was like already yeah. an hour. Wow, that, that's yeah. great. Yeah, like uh, my eyes just went down when I had the time. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it, it usually means that uh, it's been good. So for, for yeah, yeah, months. hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks again. And we're going to see you hopefully in the future. Yeah, bye bye. Thanks, take care. Bye.